Hey, I'm Hannah. I'm so excited to be sitting down with Dara K. Cohen, who is a professor here at the Kennedy School. She does teaching and research on international security, civil wars, and gender and conflict. In 2016, her first book came out called Rape During Civil War, received a bunch of awards. Before we get started into the bulk of the material, I'm just sort of curious what got you interested in civil wars and um, what brought you to the Kennedy School? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's very exciting to, to be here. I first got interested in civil wars. I guess I have to kind of go all the way back to uh, when I was in college, not because that's when I started getting interested in civil war, but that's because uh, I my first job after undergrad was working as a paralegal in the U.S. Department of Justice in what was then called the terrorism and violent crime section. And it was my, as I said, my first job. So uh, I had just gotten my security clearance. And I remember very vividly, um, my first day of work was one of the first couple of days of July in 2001. And um, six weeks later, the September 11th attacks happened. So I started getting very interested in political violence in general. Um, and decided after working at the Department of Justice for two years that I wanted to go get a PhD in political science because that would offer me the opportunity to really think um, think deeply about the causes and consequences of what um, brings people to commit acts of extreme forms of, of political violence. And so uh, Stanford was in some ways um, an obvious choice for a place to do that because some of the foremost scholars in the world who focus on issues of civil war are our faculty at Stanford. Okay. So uh, it was in some ways, it was sort of a happy accident that I ended up there. <laughs> but um, I ended up, you know, starting at Stanford and, and taking courses on civil war and thinking about political violence in the context of civil war. Uh, when I began my my graduate studies there. And then what got you into the topic of sexual violence in particular? Yeah. So for to answer that question, I'll have to go even further back, okay. which is um, really starting in high school. I, be I became very interested in, I had sort of a, a feminist awakening of sorts, um, <laughs> and I became very interested in issues of violence against women. Um, and at the time was, was um, more focused on kind of the U.S. domestic context. Uh, and so when I went to college, I... Um, became more of a sort of advocate and activist around those kinds of issues. I worked as a, a crisis hotline operator for the Rhode Island Rape Crisis Center, and I volunteered at a domestic violence shelter in Providence. Went to I went to Brown for undergrad, okay. uh, so I was based in Providence. Um, and so I, I had been thinking about those kinds of issues of, of gender violence for quite a long time. So when I ended up at Stanford um, and it was time for me to start thinking about writing a dissertation, uh, I had this uh, kind of unique opportunity to bring together my sort of long-term personal and political interests in gender violence with my academic Career, really, my academic interests in thinking about forms of political violence. So it was a it was a really unique opportunity to weave these personal and professional things t together. So when I was reading your book, one of the things I was really curious about was, and hopefully you can hash out a little bit the um, main points of your book was thinking about the new paradigm you present in terms of why sexual violence is committed during civil wars. How do you think the current 
policy and prevention and protection for victims of those crimes is flawed, both in response to how the conventional wisdom portrays why those acts are committed, and then how can it be improved if we have a better understanding of why those things occur? Yeah, that's a big question. Um, and thank you for reading my book. <laughs> I know. It's, uh, it's a tough topic it to is read heavy. about. Um, yeah. uh, so my book is called Rape During Civil War, um, not the most creative of titles. Um, but it looks at, there's kind of two main components to the book. Um, one is a cross-national analysis, looking at essentially what are the correlates of civil war, or what are the correlates of rape during civil wars. And then the other part of the book, I selected three cases to do field work in and based on the data set I collected for the for the first part of the book um, and I selected Sierra Leone, El Salvador and East Timor and Sierra Leone and East Timor are both cases where we think mass rape occurred during those conflicts and there was some variation in who committed the who was the armed group that committed the majority of, of the violence and so in Sierra Leone it was the rebels and in the East Timor case it was uh, armed groups associated with the Indonesian military. <clears throat> and in the case of El Salvador, it's a much lower lower levels of, of violence. And so the book sort of asks two big questions, kind of harnessing data from all of those various uh, pieces of the project. Um, the first is just kind of a basic question, where has rape actually happened? <laughs> um, and because before I collected this cross-national data, we didn't have um, really a, a good kind of rigorous sense of how uh, rape varies across civil wars. And the second part is kind of a more of a social science puzzle, which is how do we, why even in the context of the same war, do some armed groups rape and others do not? Uh, what ended up happening kind of through the course of my writing this book is it became kind of unwittingly became uh, <laughs> uh, a critique of some of the dominant narratives around why we see rape in wartime. Uh, so I would say some of those dominant narratives are that rape is a tool of war. Rape, rape is a weapon of war. Um, and I do want to recognize that the reason we have that narrative is the result of really hard work that particularly feminist activists um, have done over the course of many decades to bring the problem of rape in wartime out of the shadows and to the level of high politics, mm -hmm. right? So it used to be something we never talked about, and now it's something that we pass UN Security Council resolutions on. And I think that's an incredible achievement. So I, d I don't mean to take anything away from that at all. Um, but I, I do think there's a problem with this kind of narrative that we often tell around rape being a tool of war, because it it sort of suggests either implicitly or explicitly that there's kind of a, a nefarious commander who's ordering rape by um, usually his underlings, right, for some sort of clear military purpose or military goal. And what my research, I think, reveals is that's not very common, um, yeah. <laughs> that particular way of, of rape taking shape in a conflict is is actually quite rare, I think. We, we do have some cases where it seems pretty clear that rape was ordered for a military purpose. But in general, at least what I end up arguing in my book is that rape is something that sort of bubbles up from the bottom rather than something that's ordered from the top down. Um, the second part of your question had to do with the um, sort of policy implications. And, and again, I think the since I started my dissertation in 2006, there's just been an explosion of policy interest in the topic of rape in wartime and uh, a kind of a real 
political will to want to do something about this issue, which again, I think is just an an incredible achievement. Um, But the, a lot of the policy attention is focused on what's often referred to as closing the impunity gap. Um, And what I end up arguing in the book is that if I I guess I haven't even explained what my central theory is, I'll say something about that in a second. But if my central theory is in fact correct, if you believe the theory um, then, uh, and part of it has to do with kind of rape being, um, innovated from the bottom up rather than ordered from the top down, then closing the impunity gap through, uh, the prosecution of commanders and, um, is, and, and often I would say this is also implicit in a lot of the policy discourse, uh, particularly amongst, uh, people who are advocating for more prosecutions is that holding to account yesterday's war rapists, right, is going to deter tomorrow's war rapists. And we have so little evidence that that is the case, right? Um, And the reason that matters, I think, is that trials, justice, accountability processes are so incredibly costly, both in terms of the wheels of justice, which turn very slowly, and also in terms of just the economic cost of trials. So I have one colleague who estimated that every conviction from the International uh, Criminal Tribunal of the former Yugoslavia, ICTY, uh, probably costs something like $35 million. Wow. Uh, and so, and I should say, when, when some of my colleagues have done research with victims and survivors and asked them, uh, what would you like to, to mm-hmm. happen next? Justice and accountability is usually not on the top of the list. And maybe even if it's not the second thing or the third thing that um, many victims and survivors are prioritizing. So I think there are tough questions we have to kind of ask ourselves about whether putting all or most of our policy eggs in the closing the impunity gap basket is, is really good a good idea from a policy perspective. If there's other things we could be doing with those efforts and, and, and dollars. Yeah. One of the things that your argument sort of challenges is this idea of inevitability of rape during war. And I was wondering if you could just explain a little bit more how your theory in particular would make it maybe less inevitable or something that we shouldn't accept as much as just a byproduct of war that is inevitably going to happen. Yeah. So I think for a long time, rape was just sort of treated as something that happens during war. And in fact, a lot of the kind of older feminist writing even says that quite explicitly, that war equals rape, right? Um, As we've kind of uh, developed tools to look at um, different forms of violence during wartime, it's clear that there's quite a bit of of variation. So as I said, there, there are countries that have experienced um, civil war that where we know that uh, civil war in those contexts or that rape in those in those particular civil war contexts was much more severe than in other places and then we also I think have this really fascinating puzzle so if we think about the context of Sierra Leone for example people will often say oh Sierra Leone was was a mass rape war and that is true but once once we unpack the black box of the armed actors in the Sierra Leone civil war, at any one time, there's somewhere between three and six different armed groups that were active. But most of the rape that was committed was committed by one armed group. Mm-hmm. So I think really the the kind of core question is not the question of why was the Sierra Leone civil war uh, a mass rape war, but the civil war in El Salvador was not. 
but rather what makes the RUF distinct from the other armed groups in, in Sierra Leone. And so I think that kind of gets to the question of inevitability because it suggests that some armed groups are very successful at constraining or punishing or deterring rape by the members of their groups and others uh, tolerate, encourage, or even order rape by the members of their group. So it suggests it's not simply a matter of when we observe war, we also observe rape, uh, but that there's kind of dynamics happening. I, sh I think I should probably say actually what the theory of the book is. So the kind of core, <laughs> the core finding of the book is that armed groups who recruit their fighters through force, through using abduction or press ganging, as it's often called when state armed groups just simply kidnap their fighters off the street, are more likely to be reported to commit rape than are groups that use more voluntary means for recruiting their fighters. Um, I end up drawing on research actually from the U.S. college campus context to inform the theory. Um, there's this fascinating book done by an anthropologist called Fraternity Gang Rape, um, and she studied uh, fraternities on the University of Pennsylvania campus. And she ends up making um, some arguments about how gang rape can serve to kind of forge social ties between members of fraternity groups. And so I sort of explored those ideas in the context of, of wartime. Um, and I make a very similar kind of argument based on my fieldwork in these three contexts, which is that it seems that groups who are recruiting their fighters through force have to solve a kind of core problem, which is how to create a cohesive fighting force. And one method of doing that, not the only method, but one method of doing that is through um, engaging in acts of, of gang rape. So the book actually is focused not just on rape during wartime, but on gang rape in particular. And that also is kind of a core puzzle that I think was largely unresolved in the literature, which is that while gang rape is relatively rare during peacetime, basically cross-culturally, cross-nationally, during wartime, the reports of gang rape just skyrocket, right? So a place like Sierra Leone, as best as we can tell, has kind of peacetime reports of gang rape, kind of similar to the United States, 6%, 8% of reported rapes might be multiple perpetrator rapes. Um, but during the conflict, something like 70 or 80% wow. or even higher of reported rapes were multiple perpetrator rapes. So what I end up arguing in the book is that a really rigorous theory of, of wartime rape has to account for why we see a change in the how rape is committed, right? Yeah. And and has to account for this sort of shift to, to gang rape. So I think my theory helps to explain why we might be seeing that kind of shift. Yeah. As I was reading it, I, I don't know if it's just because it was it's a new idea, but it's like this is a really disturbing thing that people are, you know, using sexual violence as a means of creating um, cohesion in units. Um, and I was just wondering if you had any, if there was any resistance to your argument. Um, well, I would say that I um, have not received uh, pushback on that particular okay. piece of the argument. I can say more about a piece I have received pushback on in just a moment. But what I ended up doing as part of the book is trying to review essentially everything that we know from all kinds of contexts about yeah. gang rape, right? And so... One, one. So I actually relied on quite a bit of the criminological literature, um, thinking about what distinguishes people who commit, largely men, who commit gang rape versus um, men who commit rape by themselves. Um, and 
some of those findings suggest that people who commit gang rape are sort of more normal or less path- pathological mm-hmm. than are solo rapists, essentially. Um, and so, I, again, I think the the sort of core argument is well supported by sort of what we know from right. peacetime context, from criminology, from um, the college campus context. Uh, and when people have done interviews with co-perpetrators of gang rape, this sort of social bonding aspect is a common feature. So right. uh, in some ways, I'm, I'm just replicating that kind of research in a different context. Um, and so I, I didn't actually receive pushback on the um, sort of bonding amongst the perpetrators piece. The piece that I I did receive more pushback on is one of the key findings in the quantitative portion of the book, where I look at kind of correlates of um, mass rape during civil wars. And I also try to test alternative theories. Um, And so one of the theories that I end up testing is a theory that's been quite prominent in a lot of the feminist literature and actually in some of the policy discourse now as well, which is that countries that are more gender unequal, that have more gender inequality, um, are more likely to have uh, mass rape when they experience a civil war than countries that that aren't. Um, With the idea being that when women have less political, social, and economic rights, they become more vulnerable, essentially, to men's violence. And so using essentially every proxy measure that I could find um, that you can put in a cross-national regression, uh, which admittedly are rough proxy measures, but they are the standard proxy measures we have, right? So things like um, measures of women's economic, political, and social rights, measures of um, women's labor force participation, things that we, th- we think are um, proxies for women's right. positions in societies. I don't find a correlation between gender inequality in a country and rape, um, mass rape, uh, greater uh, an increase in, in rape during civil wars in those countries. And so that particular finding has actually sparked a bit of controversy and debate okay. amongst scholars about um, in some ways, I think some of the debate is a, mis, a misreading of the finding, or maybe it's it's my fault where I'm not as clear in discussing the finding in the, in the book. I don't mean to suggest, as some um, people have pushed back, that gender doesn't matter when we're talking about rape. Of course, it does matter, and it helps us understand quite a bit about the patterns of who is raped and who's doing the raping uh, in the context of war. Uh, but, but it does suggest that it's something... I, th- I think it's a reflection on something else I try to argue in the book, which is that it's not what helps us understand variation in rape is are not country level factors. It's right. not again what's different about El Salvador and Sierra Leone. Um, it's it's a much more interesting puzzle, I think, which is thinking about the fact that in Sierra Leone, which is a particularly gender unequal place, right? The, <laughs> uh, to put it mildly, there were lots of armed groups that were quite similar in lots of ways, right? Um, that look demographically pretty identical. And only one of those groups committed rape, right? So we right. sort of, in that way, thinking about it in a sort of conceptual level, we're kind of controlling for all kinds of things having to do with patriarchy and misogyny and gender inequality. Right. And yet we still see only one of the armed groups um, committing mass rape. So again, I, th- I think that's Explaining it in that way, which I wish I had done more of in the book, I think helps <laughs> helps explain that particular finding. But I think that was the finding that probably caused the most controversy. Okay. 
to go back to something you said earlier about this increased interest in uh, conflict and sexual violence, I was wondering if with like the Me Too movement, that changed the rhetoric around sexual violence and conflict sort of expanding out from the U.S.? Hmm, That's a really interesting question. I do want to say that I think actually academics have been paying attention to this issue for a very long time um, and that there have been... Uh, particularly feminist legal scholars, people like Catherine McKinnon, who have been writing Mm -hmm. about wartime rape since um, the the Bosnian War, since the early 1990s. So um, what I meant to say is that it's really the policy world that seems to notice and care about this issue a lot more than they used to, um, probably more so than within the academy itself. I don't necessarily know that I've seen an additional increase in interest uh, in the particular topic of rape and wartime following the Me Too movement. And actually, I think probably the height of interest in rape and wartime was when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, when William Hague was the British Foreign Secretary. Um, About five years ago, there was a summit in London uh, that was spearheaded by Hague and uh, Angelina Jolie to bring together representatives from every country in the world to talk about how to stop sexual violence and conflict. So that was sort of a a heyday moment uh, where there was just a lot of attention and will and donor dollars being poured into that particular topic. Um, And that predated the start of Me Too. So actually, I think these these issues are um, pretty siloed, actually. (laughs) Um, And there's not as much sort of overlap in discussion of kind of what's going on um, domestically in the U.S. in terms of Me Too and uh, kind of focus on, on wartime rape. Yeah, that's really interesting. You, I don't know, you'd sort of think that there would be more um, overlap or just with people thinking about it more, it would extend farther out from the U.S. Uh, I, I guess on the flip side, do you think that the way we talk about or sexual violence and conflict has shifted in any way the way we think about like rape culture in the United States or should it maybe, or do you think those do operate in very different realms? You know, I was talking to, I I think they operate in very different realms. And I think that is actually makes both the literature poorer and makes our policies less robust. So I think it's a shame that they're not more connected. And I was actually speaking to a couple of colleagues over the last couple of weeks about another policy area where I think a similar, um, dynamic has happened. And that is in the realm of thinking about child soldiering as potentially analogous to children who are pulled into gangs in the U.S. context and how we tend to treat these populations as quite different. But actually, if um, some of my colleagues who study child soldiering, a lot of their theories about how children get drawn into armed groups, the kinds of things that they are either forced to do or encouraged to do once they join those groups, how they cut, cut ties with family members, Um, the kinds of sort of familial relationships that young children form with gang leaders or rebel leaders, all these things are so similar. And yet the study of these things is, is really quite separate, right? So they're political scientists who study, um, uh, child soldiering. And then, um, there are kind of criminologists or legal scholars who study sort of children's involvement in gangs, but there's so little overlap. So I, I think it's a really exciting area for uh, future growth, but at least right now, there's not a lot of, of blending of those worlds. I'm also really curious about, 
as we see an increase in women as combatants or insurgents and then as well as on the peace building side do you think that has potential to start ameliorating a lot of these problems i know in your research it hasn't it doesn't seem like it's been the case that women being present in conflict zones while there's war going on has prevented rapes but um, I was wondering if there were any sort of encouraging things you had found in that realm. Yeah, so you um, you bring up in a kind of interesting set of, of research. So one of the things that I thought was fascinating about the RUF in Sierra Leone is that not only did they abduct their fighters and commit the most rape, but they also had the greatest proportion of women of any of the, of the armed groups um, that were fighting in Sierra Leone, probably something like 30% female combatants. Um, there is kind of a conventional wisdom floating out there in the literature that when women are more present in an armed group, this might tamp down rape by the armed group. It's not entirely clear what the causal mechanism there might be. It could be the case that groups that actively recruit women have a sort of more feminist ideology, more equal ideology, and those groups are less likely to rape civilians. It could be that um, another kind of potential argument that's sort of floating out there is there's a kind of substitution effect so that either consensual sexual relationships form between members of armed groups and so therefore there's less quote unquote need for rape of civilians um, or that the female members of armed groups themselves become victims of sexual violence, potentially um, also kind of serving as as a substitution effect for um, violence against civilians. Kind of on a related set of research, this is not my research, but I have colleagues that have looked at, at these issues in the case of, of UN peacekeeping missions as well. A lot of the arguments about trying to gender integrate peacekeeping missions, again, have to do with this idea that when potentially when women are present, this might uh, somehow, right, we don't understand exactly the mechanism that's happening here, but somehow cause there to be less rape of the civilian population. So, and one argument about why this might potentially happen is that uh, male peacekeepers are less likely to, you know, behave badly, again, in scare quotes, um, in front of members of their um, home country than they might be if, if, if there weren't women from their home country sort of watching and being uh, present. So I do have some colleagues that have looked at whether the presence of female peacekeepers does seem to tamp down kind of negative things that peacekeeping missions do up to and including the rape of civilians. It's actually a really hard question to study in part because all female units and even gender integrated units aren't tasked with the same kind of responsibilities that all male units are tasked with. So it's hard to to really compare apples to apples about whether those units are as effective or more or less corrupt. But there seems to be increasing evidence that just simply having some women present doesn't really seem to change the behavior of armed groups. Um, And then to go back to my book, I kind of make a similar argument in my book. Um, at least with the RUF, which is the case that I studied that had the most female combatants, uh, they still committed uh, an enormous amount of, of rape and gang rape. And in fact, in the, in the RUF case, female combatants also participated in those rapes. Right. right? Yeah. And so I think we have, we have not yet had the social experiment where women make up the majority of an armed group, right? So even having 30% women in an armed group, and that's including you know, major military, state militaries, um, even having something like 30% of women in an armed group is considered a 
highly feminized force, as it's often uh, put in the literature. So we don't actually know what would happen if women were commanders of largely female armed units, because we've never really seen that, right? Or at least not in the modern era. But my intuition is that when women are in the minority, uh, it's far more likely, and we also see this in, in research about corporate boardrooms and kind of workplace behavior as well, that women end up sort of adopting stereotypically male ways of relating Mm. uh, rather than uh, forging a new path about different ways of doing things. So you asked for hopeful news. (laughs) Um, So one sort of hopeful thing comes out. I have a a colleague uh, whose name is Sabrina Karim at Cornell University. She's a political scientist as well. And so she has studied some of the effects of the Liberian peacekeeping mission and Liberian police, uh, which has tried also to recruit more female police officers. Um, And one of the kind of hopeful things that she's found is has to do with the kind of changing the hopes and dreams of local Liberians uh, Mm -hmm. when it comes to thinking about the kinds of careers they might want to have. So if you've been visited by, I'm probably slightly misquoting her finding here, but essentially she finds that if you have had some kind of personal interaction with a female Liberian police officer, um, you may be more likely to kind of express interest in that career track Uh, than you would be if you had never seen one before. So I think there are some really important sort of societal level effects that we're just starting to understand. Uh, And Sabrina and some of her colleagues are are really at the cutting edge of looking at some of those things in the Liberian case. But um, my hope is that the future will, you know, we'll do a lot more research on those kinds of things in the future. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've got to let you go soon, but I was just wondering if there were any other areas of research or that you had been doing or other people were doing that were exciting to you right now? Yeah. So I have, I have a sort of broad range of research interests and we've, we've talked about one major strand, which has to do with my research on um, wartime rape. Um, Since we were talking a bit about me too, maybe I'll mention this other strand of research. Um, I have a long-term project now with one of my colleagues at the Kennedy School, Professor Matt Baum, uh, and a former MPP named Suzanne Schwartz, who's now a doctoral student at um, at Princeton. And we started this project, I think I was pregnant with my daughter when we started this project, and she's now five and a half. So <laughs> somewhere between five and six years, we were working on this project. Measure time. <laughs> exactly. Um, Uh, But so we have this kind of long term project thinking about rape culture in the United States. So uh, one of the things that we've tried to do is be more systematic about how we measure variation in rape culture um, and trying to see if uh, what are some of the consequences of rape culture in terms of how people think about incidents of rape. So we have one paper that looks at trying to, again, sort of measure rape culture across um, the U.S., Um, And right now we're working on an experimental study, which was actually inspired a bit by the Brock Turner case, the Stanford swimmer, if you remember from a few years ago, uh, and some of the kind of public discourse around features of sexual assaults that should be, it seemed to us, and actually legally speaking, this is in fact the case, should be irrelevant, but seem to have an outsized effect on how people think about particular incidents of sexual assault. So what we've tried to do in this survey experiment is um, 
very certain features of rape cases. Uh, so we vary, for example, the race of the perpetrator, the indicators of the SES, the socioeconomic status of the perpetrator, the victim's clothing, uh, the location of the attack. Uh, and what we end up finding is is not surprising, uh, but I think it's it confirms a lot of our conventional wisdoms slash worst fears around um, how we think people understand incidents of rape. So we actually tell people these are equivalent cases, which do you think is worse, right? Mm -hmm. And then we say, you know, in this case, the perpetrator was black, he was a construction worker, the victim was wearing um, a nightclub outfit, uh, and it happened in a home. And in this case, um, you know, the we varied all of those features again. Um, and given the setup of this type of experimental method, we can kind of back out people's sort of hidden, unstated biases. And so we end up finding, for example, that the location of the sexual assault um, matters a lot in terms of people's really? estimation of how severe of a crime it is and how severely it should be punished. Um, and similarly for the clothing of the victim as well. Um, and there were also some other surprising findings. We found uh, that race, actually, the race of the perpetrator seemed not to matter at all, which was somewhat surprising for us. Um, but It seems like one positive <laughs> thing. <laughs> Potentially. Yeah, I think so. Um, but yeah, I mean, just trying to show, I think what excites me about that project is that I... I think this is such an interesting moment to live in thinking about the Me Too era. Uh, and there's so much, what I think of as a social scientist, so many kind of hypotheses floating around in terms of how we make sense of gender relations. And really all of those um, ways that we think about the world are potential research projects and research questions. So one of the things that we've been trying to do, Matt and Suzanne and I, is try to be more rigorous and systematic at least about this one particular part. Um, what can we say about um, what kind of evidence ex exists for what people's biases are when they're thinking about acts of rape and then think about what some of the policy implications of that might be. So we might end up having policy implications for media outlets, for example, to um, really not report on what the victim is wearing, right? Mm, and that yeah. might actually end up influencing the way the public sort of processes uh, reading about a rape. Uh, and then there's also implications for the criminal justice system as well, um, thinking about um, how to present facts of the case that will be less likely to bias a jury, for example. Right. Is there anything else you would, you would like to add? I don't want to keep you way too long. I don't think so. This was really fun, and I'm, I'm happy to come back if you want to keep right. talking about other projects Great. as well. well. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me.